it's been a challenge to overcome it because we're still in it and not knowing the future of what we're doing is is daunting but as well it's exciting because I feel there's opportunity within this adversity that we can come out the other side and actually be better for it as an industry and also as individuals. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Australia's fishing waters are the third largest on the planet. Yet, we're ranked 80th in regard to so-called productivity. In other words, we don't drain the swamp. We expect our seafood to be sustainable, but for a nation girt by sea, we don't eat as much seafood as other countries. When Josh Nyland first opened St. Peter, no one could have foreseen the impact this young chef would have. It became known as the Nyland Effect. A young chef who not only put seafood back on the table, but changed the conversation too. Josh, how are you? I'm good, mate. How are you? I'm good. Um, Thanks for joining us. I think um, we want to touch on a lot of subjects here, but I thought, could we just start with the fact that you have St. Peter, which is an elbow-to-elbow restaurant, um, and Fish Butchery, which is uh, a retail arm of your your business. Um, So you've got sort of the restaurant and the retail. Can you give us a picture of the impact that this whole COVID-19 had on you? and when things started to change. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm in the same uh, same boat as everybody in the sense that that, that week um, where we all started to see our numbers drop off dramatically, um, we, we kind of watched, you know, 70% of the clients fall away um, in, in the restaurant and we had only been trading um, for about six weeks doing a, a fixed menu, like a tasting menu on a Friday night. Um, and that was all still quite new for us and exciting. And uh, that Friday night we did our uh, sixth or seventh tasting menu. Uh, and then at the end of that, I just had it in my stomach that we weren't really going to do the weekend um, as much as I wanted to. It was, um, you know, just <laughs> thought it would be wiser to nip it in the butt straight away so that we could, you know, squirrel what we could so that there was an opportunity down the line then to reopen St. Peter. And I wasn't, like everybody, I wasn't certain of uh, when we would get told to close. So I thought, you know, after a conversation with my wife, Julie, we we came in the following morning and advised the team of 15 at St. Peter that they'd be um, stood down, which was, uh, yeah, like when you're, when you, like you said, when you're in an elbow-to-elbow space or a sardine tin, uh, as we like to call it, it's, um, it, it's, uh, it's family and it's, um, you know, it's, it's a group of people that you spend a lot of time with and, yeah, hugely disappointing to have to bear that kind of news to people and also the ones that weren't even there that morning uh, to make a phone call like that is, um, yeah, fairly abrupt and it, there's no emotive context to that. There's no human element to that. It's a phone call. So it's, um, you know, that was disappointing and I think as well for the two members of our team, um, one was from the UK and the other was from Germany and these two had only just joined us within, you know, probably eight weeks they'd been with us and the impact that they'd made on our group, not only as talented chefs but just as people and their social acumen amongst the group was just extraordinary and I felt so good about the group and what we were doing uh, and then, you know, back on the plane they go and 
it was just um it was all a very quick grinding halt <laughs> to everything but in terms of fish butchery it was um you know i don't i think you know i've spoken to you about it before and it's probably a bit of a laugh but you know i don't think i've ever felt as relieved to have fish butchery as i kind of um you know do now um to have an essential business that we can continue to interact with our regular customers of saint peter in a in a in a different way and to also have an option for our team especially our visa team like um you know people on student working visas and working holiday visas an opportunity for them who aren't getting relief who aren't getting assistance to have something to go to uh immediately so yeah now there may be some people that don't know who you are um, you've had a pretty fast rise to stardom in the food scene, um, not just in Australia, but global recognition as well. And you've had incredible success. And, and even just this week being named in the James Baird nomination for your book, The Whole Fish, which is an amazing, amazing book. Um, what's it been like the last couple of years and that sharp rise and the success of your business? Um, to then have something like this out of your control come along and change everything? Everything, everything sped up very quickly, um, which is great from a business point of view, but also I feel like when you have a busy restaurant and I'm only almost four years into operating the business with my wife, Julie, when, when we've got a business that's going well and it's busy, you know, there's very little at times that needs to be done <laughs> or, um, there, there's fewer headaches when, when the numbers are adding up and when things are working and it's, you know, things are going well. Um, you, you don't need to, you know, worry too heavily. Like there's always the opportunity to grow and evolve and, and, and make it better and, and keep getting better at what we do. But there's not that frequency of anxiety of are we going to fill the restaurant up and, and, you know, and so to have, you know, this come along, it's very much, um, okay, how you, you very much have to become like a, uh, the leader, the czar, the manager of the group. Um, and that to me has been one of the extreme, like the biggest challenges for me personally. Um, uh, and I know my wife as well, uh, we've got three children um, and she's homeschooling uh, one of them <laughs> and then managing the other two little ones as well. And wow. yeah, yeah. whenever this kind of thing, like, I mean, I won't say whenever this kind of thing happens because it's never happened, but especially when we opened St. Peter from the beginning, uh, I go into this kind of mode where I don't answer my phone. I don't really talk to anybody. I just kind of get in as early as I can, leave as late as possible and make sure that, all the ends are tied off and that's no help to anybody really beyond making sure, you know, <laughs> revenue's taken and we keep the wheels turning. And so it's kind of this uh, mindset of the work has to be done and it's got to be done well. And so that's for the first three or four weeks of Mr. Nyland at home post being told we were shut. That was all I did uh, and it became very taxing uh, for, for us personally and also on the team at Fish Butchery as well. Um, yeah, it's a, it wasn't a good way to work. Can you give us a, an idea of the success of that compared to how the businesses were running and sort of what the state of the businesses are at the moment? Yeah, um, so a week, a week before we had to close, we decided to do this Mr. Nyland at Home uh, meal kit offering and for that first week we probably did 25 to 30 
people um, per evening, um, which was fine. It was a good way to dip our toe into something that we hadn't done a great deal of. We'd done different kind of dinner take-home packs at the butchery, but never really a full, complete package. Um, so at least we had, I suppose my wife's got to take a huge amount of credit for this in the sense that she was able to turn, like she was able to generate a website with a Shopify account with all this stuff just to quickly sync it all in so that it all became seamless and usable straight away. And I mean, without that, it's, it makes the task very difficult and the turnaround time very slow. So for us to be up and running the very first week that we weren't trading uh, and already have a bit of a, a database there to kind of send an email out to, then we found that the following week um, we, we doubled the amount of people that we were selling to and then it kind of continued to grow. So uh, at the moment it's it's tracking well um, and it was probably two or three weeks into doing these meals that I thought it would be an amazing opportunity to work with chefs um, on these meal kits. So um, given, you know, suppliers are finding it very difficult at the moment as well and, and farmers and, you know, all these great people that we've worked with over the years, you know, in particular the um, oyster growers like Tarthra and Wapango and Moonlight and Mimosa, all those guys, you know, oysters aren't really the first meal kit item that gets put on the list um, nor, nor, you know, Ben, like Ben Collison and Walker's family up, up north putting their fish on menus and things. Like we, we really tried to make sure that we were, we were interacting with those kind of important suppliers to us anyway. Um, and then like people like Mitch Orr uh, from Chichibella, Luke Powell and Keita from Chaco Bar, um, Otama Carey and Nick Hill, like these people, um, you know, who are incredible people and, and, uh, you know, they offer a craft that's unique to them um, and to saddle up to that uh, with the offering that we have has been a great opportunity and I feel like it's not only a monetary value to them where we purchase and pay for their time and their product but also uh, in the sense that chefs no longer have this anticipation of service looming and there's a certain mental strain that that brings. Like if we don't have, you know, deadlines to meet um, or we don't have a service to ascend our adrenaline into, then it's flattening. <laughs> and, you know, I know in particular working with Mitch at the time who wasn't having his hands in pasta every day was it seemed like it came at, at a time where it was a bit of a relief and it was a bit of, you know, more just to get his hands dirty and, and make some pasta. And I think that brought about some uh, freedom for him. So uh, it's been great like to work with those people. How do you cope with this kind of adversity? You know, this isn't the first big challenge you've had in your life. You had a, a tougher childhood than most. You know, how do you, how do you cope with such um, things like this? Yeah. Um, I, I listened to a podcast the other day by Howie Kahn, um, which is amazing. It's as amazing uh, as your podcast, Anthony. But um, it's uh, he, did, he did it with Will Gadera and the title of the conversation was adversity is a terrible thing to waste and i just i i kept thinking about it and it was a fascinating way of thinking of it um adversity is you know for me personally when i was a kid like i, I had cancer as a kid but you know it's always this i mean i think that happening at an early age is really kind of set me on a certain path to make sure that 
we just I just stay focused and do get the work done basically and and do my very best to make sure that you know I, I set the right example and standards for myself and also the group of people that you know work with me but also as a parent I think that's been very challenging for me um, to uh, prioritize uh, my time uh, at work and and the efforts that I put into my work to make sure it keeps going and then share that with enthusiasm and vigor as a dad and a husband I think that's been the biggest challenge and an adversity that I'm yet to overcome but I feel I'm getting better um, but sometimes these kinds of significant things really shed light on areas that you you personally probably need to work on um, and yeah I think I think that's done <laughs> I think that's uh, what's happened to me now um, so I'm you know, it, it's been hard having really hard conversations with people that work uh, here at the restaurant and, and outside as well. But, you know, people like Todd Garrett and Paul Farag who manage the butchery um, in, in, you know, at Fish Butchery uh, have been, you know, their, their standards haven't dropped, you know. Like if there's a conversation about we need to work like this now or we need to adapt and change, then, then it's met with acceptance and, you know, um, it's it's empowering to work with people that you know are able to maintain a standard even at a time when you know everything feels hopeless so um yeah i i feel like i haven't answered your question at all but it's um it's it's been a challenge to overcome it because we're still in it and not knowing the future of what we're doing is is daunting but as well it's exciting because I feel there's opportunity within this adversity that we can come out the other side and actually be better for it as an industry and also as individuals. You know, moments ago you mentioned um, a whole raft of amazing chefs um, with a craft unique to them. And if we're speaking of chefs in that manner, you know, then seafood comes to mind with you. What? Why seafood and um why did you head head down that path and explore it in such um, an amazing way? Yeah, um, I like. I mean, long and the short of it, fish is really hard, <laughs> and, and I, I like that. I like that about it. I find it extremely difficult to find the right fish to work with it to work within the parameters of its perceived fragility. Like you know, it's it's a challenge to to find really excellent product. Um, and to cook it correctly and you know but i feel like my time spent uh at, at fish face um was at darlinghurst i think i was 19 years old when i went and worked for Stephen um there and i mean beyond telling funny stories about how i met him and you know all sorts of different adventures that we had um Stephen invested his career's you know, knowledge in my brain at a very young age and I managed to absorb a lot of it and I managed to listen to conversations that maybe had no relevance at the time but somehow absorbed it through osmosis. <laughs> and he was just so generous with his information and also his willingness to teach um, and also the standards that he set within running a business. Um, in particular at Darlinghurst when it was just Stephen and, you know, a handful of individuals, there'd be, 
you know, just the standard in terms of when you walked in, you had to check everything in the restaurant. It was no one's personal responsibility. It was the group's responsibility to make sure that the place looked a million dollars and that, you know, the business would be a success. And there's so much of those um, lessons that I suppose have gone unnoticed that now are becoming, you know, very relevant to what I'm kind of talking about with, with our team here at the restaurant. But you know, to have somebody invest so much time and effort into my career, um, in particular Steve, but not only Steve, but Peter Doyle and, you know, Joe Pavlovich and, you know, many others, but um, Stephen in particular, to invest that much time, I think it's a bit of a middle finger to go out and then start doing something else or start trying to be a jack of all. So I think it was really, you know, the f people talk about the future of Australian food or, or what is Australian cuisine. I think cuisine in general as a whole is just this continued knowledge, like all the learning that we get, you know, it's about taking it, evolving it, moving it forward and, and then teaching it on and then passing it on to the next person. And then, you know, the ball just keeps running. And I, you know, there's so much of Steve's work in our work, obviously, but it's just because the black and white basics were so good, then if if that if that basin if that net underneath you is sound then you can become very creative and and very unique very quickly uh, because you have such a confidence in that knowledge that you've been given so that's probably why fish um and as well i don't believe that we've looked at it close enough i uh, i think we've We've done things a certain way for an extremely long time and it's gone unquestioned and um there is a better way to do things that will result ultimately in a more sustainable future for fish. You know, you speak of um, the challenges involved with seafood and, and I agree. I, I love your exploration with seafood and a very big advocate of that. Um, but seafood also really relies on simplicity. Do you have any um, tips on buying fish or cooking fish that, could help people sort of that are either just getting started or just um, up their game? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I've tried to write it in my first book and it's really, uh, it's still a really hard one to answer. Like how, how can I do this at home or how can I be better at cooking fish? And to me, like, you know, fish is so many hurdles, the perception that it's bony and smelly and, you know, um, it's too much work or what if I undercook it or what if I overcook it? But I think the, the biggest, like, uh, the biggest thing to me personally, this is such a personal thing, but fish can't be washed. Like you can't put it under a tab when you're washing it. Like when you're, when you're processing a fish, it shouldn't go under a tab because I mean, as soon as you start adding water to a fish and it starts becoming a wet product, you take a wet product to a fry pan with hot oil in it you know, one, you're going to get splattered with fat. And then the other is most often than not, even if you've got, you know, a great pan, you're going to end up with a fish that sticks to the bottom of the pan. And then you end up with fish flips and spatulas trying to dig this thing off the bottom of a pan. Yeah. So you need to put yourself in the best possible position uh, to get a good result, whether that's a pan fry, crispy skin, you know, piece of mackerel, or whether it's, um, baking something on papillon. Um, the second that water hits a fish and is drowned under a tap, 
you will notice that on your nose as soon as you start to eat it. You've got that ammonia starting to build up. Um, so handle your fish dry or if, you know, you're, you're buying wet fillets, then that's challenging, but pop it on a cake rack in your fridge and allow the fan in your your fridge to blow over the skin and dry the skin out. And that's a good little way of um, drying the skin out so that you can get a good crispy skin result as you would get in a restaurant. Um, I suppose the other thing is if you go down to the markets, um, in I, I suggest if you don't want to take home a fish with scales or guts in, then ask the person uh, processing that fish to scale the fish for you and gut it, but leave any sediment or scale on the outside of it so that all you need to do when you get home is wipe it off with paper towel. So it's not as if you need the confrontation of conversation like, please don't wash my fish because a lot of the times you'll probably get the middle finger back at you. <laughs> um, but try asking uh, for that you know, monotonous task of scaling and gutting to be done for you um, so that then when you get home, then it's just a matter of simply wiping the scale and sediment away from the fish with a paper towel. And then ultimately you've got a product which, you know, all of a sudden goes from having a three-day shelf life if it was washed up to a six- to seven-day shelf life in a domestic refrigerator. And, I mean, that's another part of the challenges that fish has is just the perception that you've got half an hour to get it in the pan and eaten before you know your fridge blows up with you know ammonia so um yeah uh without turning this into a cooking <laughs> cooking program that's kind of well we could i'm, I'm happy to listen <laughs> yeah keep your fish dry and then look out for the obvious quality points when you're purchasing your fish nice and bright and you know a little bit of slime on the outside and you know, all those things. No, no odor should be on a fish. Fish doesn't stink. Um, only bad fish stinks. So, you know, Your menus always champion the um, fishermen and the catchers and the growers that you uh, use on your menu. Um, how important are they to you and, you know, how are they coping at the moment? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the first person that I had quite a long conversation with was Ben Collison um, with regards to the, the Chinese market just falling through um, and him losing, I think he said to me, it was up to like 80 or 90% of his business, uh, which, you know, <laughs> there's, there's no real turning back from there. But he, you know, he's an extraordinary example of, um, you know, the next generation of Australian fishermen um, and, and just setting it a huge standard in with regards to his processing, his meticulous handling, um, and just the turnaround time to be able to get a fish from the water to us at the fish butchery in inside 18 hours is just extraordinary. Um, you know, there's, there's people like that. There's people like Bruce Collis at the corner inlet, which, you know, Neil Perry is champion for, you know, decades. And, um, you know, he's just, Again, another example of uh, somebody who just cares on every level uh, about how it comes out of the water, how it gets put into tubs, and then how it gets processed and shipped on to uh, wherever it's going. So the connection and importance of conversations between us and our suppliers right now is probably more critical than it ever has been because they're feeling the same stresses um, because, you know, their businesses rely a lot on wholesale, obviously. Um, you know, few of us have the opportunity um, domestically to go and get Ben Collison's line caught, Ikijime brain spiked, you know, coral trout for our dinner. Um, and, 
you know, even our oyster farmers as well, like talking to Steve, Steve Folletti at Moonlight Oysters and um, Gary Rodley at Tarthra. It's amazing that they're they're adapting quickly as well. They're offering different services and they're they're trying to engage with a different market base. And again, this conversation of like overcoming adversity, it's giving us all an opportunity to really look at our business models and see what's possible and what we can actually take from such a negative situation um, and move forward and build it into our business models moving forward. Um, because, you know, a Mother's Day hamper wasn't on my agenda this year, but now it is. And it's it's proving to be something, you know, quite popular as it is all around Sydney and probably all over the country, um, you know, where we haven't had to invest effort, time and real brain capacity into these extracurricular sides of our business. Now we have the opportunity to do that and build systems and protocols as to how how we can do that moving forward. Like I've one of our team members is back today, which is amazing because he's the last piece of the puzzle for us. And I'm, you know, going to be getting him to begin working out the costs and framework of what this Mr. Island at home business is and then how we can move forward with it as a viable option um, in case, you know, it does take the time to produce a vaccine. Uh, you know what I mean? Like it's going to take of like an, an obvious amount of time to build back customer confidence to come back to a restaurant uh, and have the same feeling that we had before. So there, there really does need to be uh, a secondary option for us to sustain what we're doing. Yeah, and given St. Peter is a sardine can, as you say, um, and it's a wonderful experience to be in there and I'd love eating in that sort of elbow-to-elbow -elbow environment, um, but given that there may be some restrictions when the restaurant does open up, do you – do you feel your best chance is to wait for all the restrictions to relax or, you know, what, what do you think uh, is ahead? That's been, that's probably been the biggest conversation between Julie and I at home <clears throat> and we're trying to work that out at the moment. We're in the process of removing as much as we can out of the restaurant to give ourselves as much leg, leg room to produce all this, all these meals. At the moment, you know, you're working off one stovetop producing 400 pies for Good Friday and making batches of bechamel when really it'd be wonderful to have a, a brat pan that you could do it all in one batch. But, um, you know, the, the conversations around what St. Peter um, was and, and possibly can be is something that we're going through now and uh, we've got a storage space um, upstairs at St. Peter. The, at the moment, we're trying to convert into a prep kitchen um, that can, you know, uh, move the group of people working on this Mr. Nyland uh, product upstairs so that, you know, that can be happening up there and then downstairs then, um, you know, we're talking about a lot of different ideas but one of those ideas is perhaps um a venue that seats 14 people um where you know it, we charge a premium um for for the product that we do so i mean there's a whole list of different ideas that we've got but uh, there's something and i mentioned this to you probably three months ago now when we were talking about one of my favorite restaurants which is swan oyster depot in san fran and that kind of restaurant i think you know, is so engaging and so wonderful, but then how 
how does that work and how, how, how um, you know, can, can you stand in front of somebody, open them an oyster and put them, you know, in front of them? Like how, how does that work? And so they're the, they're the kind of uh, hurdles we've got to jump over. But um, the idea of doing something small and even more bespoke and unique uh, is quite exciting and I suppose is the carrot being dangled at the moment to think that maybe we can get to that at some stage. So um, I feel like Australia is in a, pretty good position um compared to most and and it's um it's saddening to see (laughs) like people in such worse positions right now um but yeah i um yeah we're we're quite lucky what good do you hope comes out of all of this uh an appreciation from the general public about all facets of the hospitality industry including those who aren't citizens of the industry (laughs) who aren't citizens of australia i think our you know 20 hour students and our working holiday visas and our skilled you know visa workers are you know the fabric of our whole industry um i mean i've been fortunate to work with a huge number of people over 16 years of being a chef and you know to work with a sushi chef from tokyo uh to work with you know chefs from michelin star restaurants out of spain france and england like that that's just like a learning in it in of itself and it's extraordinary to have had that opportunity and to not leave them out to dry because I feel like, you know, the government's done an, an extraordinary effort like to offer the assistance that it has, but, you know, a huge an amount of people have slipped through the cracks. And so to hope on the other side of this, there is an appreciation for the work that we all do uh, and the price of what that is, is I suppose, um, uh, like respected, uh, whether we have to, you know, raise our prices a little bit to accommodate, you know, not having enough bodies in our restaurants. <laughs> um, you know, uh, we have the opportunity right now to start fresh. There's never been a time in history where every restaurant in the world has been closed at one time. So we have an opportunity to get on the backside of this and really look uh, at the model that we're working under and does it work? Is it broken? How can we fix it? Um, even down to an education stage of looking at how our TAFEs are, are teaching the next generation of chefs. Um, you know, everybody talks about a chef wearing many hats. You have to think, you know, there's never been a time right now where I haven't felt more like a psychologist, a nutritionist, a healthcare worker, you know. Uh, you know, there's so many new roles that we're being we're, we're being forced into and I'm, I'm uh, so happy that I've got my wife to share a lot of that. Like she's extraordinary to be able to wear such a business acumen side of our, you know, of St. Peter. Like she's, she's sending out emails and making people aware of, you know, ever-changing, um, you know, situations. She's been amazing. But I just feel like they're – there's an opportunity for a curriculum to be built where people that are wanting to enter this profession, there needs to be something there to educate them so that they're, they're braced and ready, not for this to happen again, I hope, but just to think that food's not the only reason why you become a chef. Um, and, and here are some more tools, um, at your disposal to overcome any adversity that comes your way. Do you think there'll be a change in what people want? to eat at the other end of the pandemic? 
Um, I mean, I've read lots of different things, and I'm sure everybody has. There's there's a there's the thought that everybody will want a slightly more generous offering that brings a bit more comfort um, and and less geared towards sharing and a bit more individualized uh, offerings. And and how how likely it is to see a three or four hour tasting menu again? I'm not sure, but um, it's uh, I, I I think there needs to be precedence put on the uh, investing money in a quality product. And I feel like at the beginning of this year, I really, you know, around the world, like ha- having the great fortune of being able to travel a little bit at the end of last year and seeing what restaurants were doing, there seems to be an appreciation at the moment or before um, for a quality product being purchased and a, a premium product and then selling it for what it actually, what the value of that product is and not doing a great deal to it. So, um I mean, one example is Angler in um, Los Angeles that I got to eat at. It was the most pristine product that you didn't have to do anything because everything was so perfect. Um, and, uh, you know, for me personally, owning a, a very one-dimensional business that is fish, I mean, that's what I'm trying to get to where I'm trying to work with only the very best uh, product that we can get our hands on Um and celebrate those who are going the extra mile um, and uh, creating a unique experience like that. But um, I don't. I think it'll change a lot with regards to that that kind of that share offering. I think it's going to take a lot of confidence to get back to that convivial style dining of you know sharing <laughs> uh, sharing plates. You know, but I I do feel that we're all desperate for that to happen we're all desperate to get back into a restaurant and feel the energy of a room because a restaurant's not just the food obviously nor the wine it's the kind of it's the it's the people that make it tick and the the um the energy that the room has um yeah i miss that personally standing you know in the in the restaurant like i used to get goosebumps when i was cooking fish and listening to the music that was playing and hearing voices and you know it, it's extraordinary and now you know my service is sending boxes out at 3 p.m. and then getting home at 8 or 9 o'clock in the evening and watching Instagram messages of either adoration or we didn't get enough or, you know, seeing something didn't get followed, the instructions that you gave. And so your service where you used to have a gen- like a restaurant manager or a, or a waiter to vent to and go like, why did they do that or what happened here? And, you know, I'm walking around the lounge room saying that to Julie. <laughs> um, so it's it's a funny, like it's so, so different and it's just something that we're, yeah, like I said, it's like whenever you open a new business, which is what all of us have done for those who have opened a, a takeaway business or a grocer or, you know, we've all opened new businesses and it all comes with a new set of rules and a, and a new um, framework. Like we can't inherit anything that we've done before. Um, our underlying skills and techniques as a chef obviously are consistent, but we have to think of different ways to generate interest. I'm, I'm shocked at how, you know, I, I never personally would have gone online and purchased a meal and then gone and picked it up before. Yet, you know, all these people are kind of doing that. I mean, Cafe Parsi's got a line down the street. Esther's selling out as soon as it goes online. You know, you've got all these people doing extraordinary food. And, you know, to the credit of the media in Sydney and Australia and also the, the dining scene, uh, the, the customers, the frequent customers um, that came out, they're all supporting us and they're all getting behind us and, and, 
And um, I think it's just been, I think, big credit to the media for really broadcasting our efforts um, to, to let the wider public know um, the efforts that we're going to, to to make sure that our businesses stay stay alive. Josh, when the doors do open again and you're manning the pans <laughs> and the guests come in, how's it going to feel? Yeah, it's pretty, <laughs> pretty amazing. Um, definitely, uh, especially if I can be surrounded by the same group of people I, I um, had to stand down. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it'll be a relief. Uh, I won't lie to you and, and not tell you that I am enjoying a night off um, <laughs> here and there and, and um, seeing, putting the kids to bed and reading a story and, you know, bringing Mr. Nyland at home back to my house for my dinner. Um, that's been kind of cool. But um, I, I definitely uh, really looking forward to that moment of uh, not getting back to normal but almost just starting afresh and, and really putting my head down on something new um and and yeah we'll see how we go <laughs> well mate you um i've known you since you're quite a young chef and uh yeah i remember you were the first person to try fish offal that i'd cooked and and i and i remember you coming downstairs you came downstairs to same uh to fish fish phase and i'd been marinating a uh a big hapuka milt um, so a bit of man row really. Um, but I, I'd been marinating it in soy for like two weeks and I pan fried it for you and we both ate it at the same time and thought, you know, how much it tasted like a sweet bread, but I can still remember yeah. giving that to you. And then you ate in the restaurant that night and I gave you another couple of dishes as well. But yeah, like we've, we've kind of, uh, known of each other for, for a long time now, but, um, yeah, I was very trusting of you, wasn't I? Obviously. Very. Yeah, down to the down to the den and fish face eating fish sperm. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, um, mate. You are an amazing talent, and you're also a beautiful human. Um, thanks for today, and um, please keep in touch. And uh, good luck with everything. Thanks for having me on. Sorry I couldn't be on earlier, but I'm glad we chatted. <laughs> me too, mate. Take care. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's HOSPO community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Stay safe, isolate and be well.